Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. Welcome to the business community on Callan FM with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And this week's topical discussion is based on an article that I found on the Office for National Statistics website last week. Actually. We love that website, don't we? Yeah, it's amazing. And um, I th- I'm sure it's the place where a lot of journalists get their stories mm. from. And this was a ready-made article. Um, it's, uh, it, it is actually a um, fully written article. So sometimes in the ONS, you've just got lots of stats and you have to work through it. But somebody has very kindly written, um, pulled together these stats and written up some information about young people's career aspirations versus reality. And so this was published on the 27th of September and it's looking at what aspirations um, 16 to 21 year olds and 22 to 29 year olds are facing. So they, they, they studied the ambitions of those facing 16 to 21 year olds in 2011, 2012, and then looked at the 22 to 29 year olds in 2017. And it's come up with some really, really interesting stuff, which is actually just on a plate for you as well so there's no digging into the statistics that you have to do you don't have to be afraid of the numbers because it's all spelled out there's graphs and that there's commentary around it as well and uh I picked up a number of really useful things in the article. Um, it was looking at the top five jobs chosen by 16 to 21 year olds in 2011-2012 and then looked at the proportion of 22 to 29 year olds doing those jobs in 2017. There was a, a, They were looking at uh, aspects of employment that were important to uh, young people, 16 to 21 year olds, and uh, it wasn't exactly as a lot of... Um, employers would expect Mm. Um, expected earnings versus reality looking at expectations for degree and the attitudes towards security and job satisfaction and the top 10 jobs for 22 to 29 year olds in 2011 compared to 2017 so I got a lot out of it before I launch into my side of it I I thrust this at you Heather and said can we do this Mm. Um, was that a good decision I think it's a really interesting um, piece of work and and the stats, they kind of, in some respects, they they fly in the face of what we might ordinarily expect young people to be thinking about. So I think it, as an employer, it might change your mindset in terms of what is attractive to young people. Now, you know, any business needs to have young people within it to keep it fresh and to keep it ahead of times. Um, There are two things that leapt out to me. So in terms of um, uh, aspects of future occupations importance to 16 to 21 year olds the most important thing for them was that their job is interesting and one of the lowest things was that they have lots of leisure time contribute to society and high income actually ranks fifth out of seven now I think that's interesting. However, when you look at the expected earnings of young people, um, there's a bit of a, a disconnect in terms of what they think they're going to be earning. So their idea of a high income is perhaps not what we in the world already in the world of work think of as a high income. So you know, there are quite a lot of young people who think that you know they should they should they should be earning forty thousand pounds just like almost from the get go. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. And so, 
there's a there's a chance that they may well be disappointed because even though they think it's not that important, what they consider to be high income is perhaps um, it, you know is is not what we consider to be high income, and I think there's a disconnect there. Yeah, and I think there, there's also something to be um, learned from what you're saying in terms of what is important to um, the young people with interesting job by far being the most important mm-hmm. aspect. I think as employers, we need to be aware of these when we're looking to recruit and particularly to retain employees. And it, it's really, with high income being low down the list, it doesn't mean, say, you should pay them peanuts. I think it means you need to offer a richer career for somebody where, where the job security is quite high. It's, all, it's often assumed and often said that millennials don't stick with a job. Mm. But maybe they don't stick with a job because it's not interesting or because they don't have the flexibility. So maybe job security would be something valuable to them if the whole package was right. And of course, nowadays, job security, people say, well, there's no such thing as job security anymore because we've been through these really volatile times where, you know, people of my generation, I mean, I've been made redundant three times in my working career. You know, it's almost like, you know, a job for life is unheard of and almost not encouraged. So that in itself is quite interesting that um, they want job security even though their parents and possibly grandparents um, have, have, have existed without it. So the important, the balance is shifting again. Uh, again, I think, I, I think that's really interesting and not what you might expect. Now, the top five jobs chosen by 16 to 21 year olds in 2011 and 2012, it goes um, at the top um, by far, was artistic, literary and media type job, followed by teaching and educational. Um, and not far behind that was health professional, so pharmacist, dentist, vet, um, protective services, i.e. police officer and firefighter, and nursing and midwifery. And all of those um, were the difference between aspiration and reality was, was actually quite startlingly large mm, mm. with... Um, Actually, the biggest drop being the one that was the top. So the artistic, literary, media type aspiration was way down, um, down to less than 2%. Teaching isn't far behind aspiration. Health professionals, again, is way down. And protective services, nursing and midwifery. So the only one that was anywhere close to the aspiration was teaching and educational. Mm. And I suppose that raises all sorts of questions in my mind as to, you know, well, are they um, the people in these jobs now? Are they dissatisfied because it didn't uh, match their aspiration? How have they managed that change? Are they looking to change? You know, what what is going on? Is there some sort of career development plan that they've got, or are they just going to spend the rest of their lives dissatisfied with the job that they've got? So, um, a whole load of coaching issues come out mm, with that one. Mm. I think the the one that leaps out to me is the artistic, literary, and media. So you know, a massive gap between those who wanted to do that and those who actually do it. And we did see a, a huge trend. Of people of, of youngsters studying media, you know that was what are they studying? They're studying media. Okay, what is that? Your know, film studies or whatever it might be, um, and actually the ability to earn a living 
with those types of skills, you either need experience or you need a lucky break, depending whether you're, um, you know, depending which sector you're you're in. Now, I don't know if that includes journalism, for example, um, but I th- you know, again, I think there's that. In an ideal world, everybody wants to be famous for something, and that's why they were perhaps drawn to the, that um, that type of role. But it's very, very difficult to make a living. So even though we're subjected to artists and film and authors and all of those types of things, there are loads and loads of people who aren't successful at it. So whether there's a bit of a reality check takes yeah. place somewhere. And interesting, in the light of the um, the show last week where we were focusing on civil engineering, mm. it there's no mention of civil engineering there as an aspirational career at all. So, in fact, you know, the science is it's left to uh, health professionals, really, to to Mm. cover anything to do with sciences in in that top five jobs. And yet civil engineering would be a really interesting job or could be a really interesting job because there are so many strands to it. What we learned last week. Yeah, I I was amazed. So the top 10 jobs in which um, uh, 22 to 29 year olds worked and they compared 2011 to 2017. And the top job is actually sales assistants and cashiers. And um, that's in 2011 was just under 7% and um, in 2017 just over 6%. Uh, caring and personal services in, in 2017 uh, comes second and teaching and education third. What you see is right at the bottom at number 12, construction and building trades, which dropped from number seven on the list in 2011. So again, in the context of the conversation we had last week, where the skills gaps in civil engineering and construction yet the number of people employed in those sectors has has dropped significantly. An element of that will be the recession. Yeah. And that, you know, in in 2017, you know, building was, well, it was just starting to emerge. So I think that there'll be, you know, some of that will be down to that. What did you see in that list then, Heather? So um, in in terms of um, movements between the two years? Well, I think there are two things. I think firstly, um, on the face of it, you might look and think, crikey, all our young people are sales assistants and cashiers. And you might not necessarily see that as a career path. But I think the stats are high because very often uh, youngsters will be studying and working shifts in a supermarket or, you know, shop or a pub or whatever so so they're you know they're doing the two in tandem and I think that the um the other one that is really interesting is in 2011 the number of 22 to 29 year olds working in IT and telecommunications that was number 12 whereas in 2017 it's up to number seven and that is perhaps okay you know it might be bleeding obvious but I think that's quite a hike and that's that's going to continue and increase because we look to our young people to be ahead of latest technology. And you think about even just the mobile phone situation and social media between 2011 and 2017, it's gone it's gone through the roof. So I think though, for me, those are the interesting ones. So the link for this article on the ONS website will be on our website. Um, So when today's show goes on, episode 40 we're on today, Heather. (gasps) Episode 40, can you believe? Um, We'll put the link on there. But I would also strongly recommend taking a look at the ONS website. And if you're 
stuck as to where to go, um, a good place to start is just looking at recent publications and seeing what's what's up there. As well as having recent publication list, it also says what's coming up as well. So it, it, it's a good place to, to just go and have a look, see if you're doing a business proposal, uh, if you're writing some research, whatever you're doing to do with your business. If you're looking to see what's going on in the wider world, you might be doing a pest analysis or something. Take a look here because there is tons of information. Some of it admittedly is a bit dry and a bit heavy to get through. And then other gems like this, you've got the article ready written for you. You're listening to the business community on Callan FM and we've got a bevy of news and events for you this week. I'm going to set the ball rolling with a, a, a few events that I I think look great. The first one caught my eye. It's in London. It's a Sunday event. It runs 10 till 4 on the 28th of October and it's called the One Day MBA. The Fundamentals of Business Taught by World Leading Academics. It's a paid event, as you would expect. It's £200 um, or two people can go for £348. But it it says, have you ever dreamt of studying for an MBA? Um, Building on the success of The Guardian, so it's run by The Guardian, um, The Guardian's one-day MBA. Last year, we're bringing this back. You'll have unprecedented access to content normally locked away in the ivory towers of universities at a fraction of the cost. Um, There's influencing change, transforming your business strategy, leadership in a digitally transformed world, motivation, goal pursuit and consumer behaviour and digitising your business. Doctor this and, you know, professor that. Uh, It looks like a really good day. Yeah, I I, I quite fancy that. Um, Then a bit closer to home up in... um, in uh, the CIPD Merseyside and North Cheshire branch they're running a workshop around redundancy Um, it's in Liverpool Uh, it's um, the 30th of October 6 till 8 o'clock and uh, it's it's looking at you know what is redundancy appreciating you know what you can and can't do and making sure that you're aware of the law and its statutory requirements Uh, that's about 15 pounds to attend There's a new business network uh, meeting on the 6th of November. Uh, That's in Crewe. It's 9.45 till midday. It's a pay-as-you-go networking group uh, where you can um, pop along, you know, and only pay if you turn up. So I thought that one looked like a really interesting one. And... Finally, thinking about what we've just been talking about, CIPD Merseyside running an event at Sefton Park. Um, this is a 1.30 till 5.30 on the 22nd of November. And it says, good work. How do we get there from education to employability? So this looks at how we can support young people who are in education to make the move into the employment market. And I thought that just really resonated with what we've been talking about for our topical discussion. What have you got, Tracy? Okay, I've got some news. So first of all, from HMRC, a new pilot for the digital VAT service was launched this week. Half a million businesses are trying it ahead of the new rules that come into force in April next year. So from the 1st of April 2019, making tax digital um, will affect around 1 million businesses registered for VAT with a taxable turnover of above 85,000, which is the threshold for VAT. And they will need to keep their VAT records digitally and file their returns using MTD, making tax digital, 
compatible software. So the pilot this week with around half a million businesses was for um, a small subsection of businesses. And one of the prerequisites was that the records had to be up to date and straightforward. And um, a small group of customers whose requirements are more complex. So maybe they're um, trusts or not-for-profit organisations that are still companies, including charities, um, organisations that are in tax groups or tax divisions, they're going to be given an extra six months to prepare, but they're still going to have to comply with the regulations for making tax digital by the 1st of October 2019. So it's going to be happening to you if you're uh, above the turnover threshold of £85,000 or you've um, registered for VAT regardless, then this 1st of April 2019 or and the outside chance that you're one of the more complex companies then from the 1st of October 2019. Don't leave it to the last minute. No, to you've look got into six it. months or 12 months. Yeah. Get a move on. Yeah. And looking at the Small Business Commissioner's website, I keep an eye on that because it's relatively new and I wanted to know that the Small Business Commissioner is actually doing something. So there were a few blog posts and I saw a link to a call for evidence. And this is where the government is seeking evidence, seeking views, uh, seeking input from organisations on what they can do to create a responsible payment culture. So they're looking for current experiences of businesses in payment practices, the impact of existing measures to improve payment practices and what more can be done to further refine the measures that have been taken and to promote good practice and whether any new measures should be introduced to further encourage a responsible payment culture. There is a link which we will put on our website, the business.community, but you can find it on um, www.gov.uk if you go digging far enough. And there you'll find 38-page PDF to read. (laughs) And you can respond to this call for evidence online, which I think is their preferred option. You can also respond by email or in writing. But they state that your response will be most useful to them if it is framed as a direct response to the questions asked in that 38-page. PDF. They're also looking for any further comments that you have and evidence would be most welcome. So yes, that's a call for evidence on tackling late payment. Our book review this week is Good to Great by Jim Collins and the subtitle is Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. And It isn't a book that I own. And again, like uh, many times when we review a book, I've done a lot of research around it, but don't actually own the book. But it's something actually that would fall on the list of if it was there, maybe I would go get it from the library or something because I'm quite interested in the stuff that I've read around it. Um, It's largely based on a massive amount of research that was done. And at the beginning of the book, um, he he goes through and, and credits all of the researchers and all of the research that has been done. And at the back of the book are all of the references. And there are pages and pages and pages of this. So what I took from this was it was a well-researched academic style book. And um, I, I think as well, the content actually was quite appealing. So it... It starts off, one of the first sentences in the book is, good is the enemy of great. And that's what then becomes a whole chapter. Uh, It introduces a concept of something called level five leadership. 
And then first who, then what? Confronting the brutal facts, yet never losing faith. Something bizarrely called the hedgehog concept. A culture of discipline, technology accelerators, the flywheel and the doom loop. And from good to great to built to last. And that's the entire contents of the book. Now, I flick through all sorts of research on it and uh, reviews on it. But first of all, I want to hand over to Heather, who's gone to one of our favourite places for a book review. And that's Four Minute Books. What did you find out from there, Heather? Right. Well, the first thing and the thing that resonated with me the most was a quote from the author. Um I'm not sure about the grammar of this, but I'll, I'll read it as is stated. This Jim Collins says, by definition, it is not possible to everyone to be above the average. So statistically, yeah, that's impossible. Yes. Yeah, but that's it, how but, maths works. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, it's kind of like, oh, actually, yeah, we need to remember that. Um, however, he then goes on to talk about how you become great in the first place. How as a business do you um, ramp things up and how do you excel? The research, there were 28 companies across three categories uh, and um, and over a period of 30 years. And that's the data set that um, Jim and his team of researchers were looking at. And they were they were monitoring companies that went from being average or below average uh, in terms of stock market performance to then outperforming the stock market by a factor of at least three. So they are really looking at businesses that raise their game. Now, you've mentioned the hedgehog concept. Okay, so there are three key um, findings. And the first lesson, lesson one is find your hedgehog concept. If the lion is the king of the jungle, then the hedgehog is the king of the forest. The hedgehog, yeah. Okay, so I went on to read a little bit, but I can't really get my head around the hedgehog um, concept because in one respect, um, they talk about a hedgehog when things are going, you know, when the pressure's on, the hedgehog curls itself up into a ball. Makes with it, itself spiky. Makes itself spiky and kind of wants everything to go away. And yet, I don't th- think for a minute that's what they're suggesting that you should do. Now, whether it's about resilience, maybe, you know, I've missed something there. Um, and perhaps reading the whole book, it would become apparent. Um so that's a bit of a mm, not quite sure. So I picked up that the hedgehog concept is about it's nothing to do with spines and curling up in a ball, as far as I'm aware, but three overlapping circles. And there's a question in each one. So what can you be the best at in the world? Yeah. What drives your economic engine? So what can you earn money from? And what are you deeply passionate about? And where all three of those circles intersect is what you should be focusing on. So in order to succeed, you have to go right to the centre of that. And um, it can be uncomfortable to ask yourself what you can be the best at. I think, And we're not talking good here, clearly. We're talking the best at. So I think there'd be quite a bit of soul searching, quite a bit of research on, you know, your own thoughts, your own talents. Because you're also going to admit, have to admit what you're not good at mm. as well in order to get to what you are the best at. And I think that's true of so many of the books that that we mention and, and sort of signpost. And hopefully, you know, people out there are, are reading these books and, and it, it, they're going through that sort of soul searching. But sometimes you can read a book and you might not like the journey that it takes you on. You might not like the conclusions that you draw from it. You might not like to find out that actually you're in the wrong job, you're running the wrong type of business, you're in the wrong country, whatever it might be. So I think that can be really difficult. Yeah. Uh, 
often when we're doing these um, researching um, for topics and books, I can go down a rabbit hole, can't I? You can. And this time the rabbit hole I went down was the level five leader concept. Now, a level five leader, as defined in the book, is someone who is modest and willful but is humble and also fearless. And it's this, it's a bit of a yin and yang, and how can you be both things? And one of the reasons why I, I would be keen to read this book if it was handed to me is that it, it, it describes a level five leader, but also how to become a level five leader with some practical advice if you're currently a level four leader. So I think that might be quite useful reading if if you find um, his writing style suits you. Now, I quite liked his writing style, so that led me on to an article that I found on Harvard Business Review, and he was talking about Level 5 leadership in this article. So it was originally from 2001 in Harvard Business Review, and there is a reprint in 2005. But he, he's, the couple of things he said in this article really chimed with me. He said, boards of directors typically believe that transforming a company from good to great requires an extreme personality, an egocentric chief to lead the corporate charge. But Jim says this is not the case. The essential ingredient for taking a company to greatness is having a level five leader, an executive in whom extreme personal humility blends paradoxically, with intense professional will. Okay, that's interesting because a lot of the people that we profile on this show, now I wouldn't say a lot, there's a good proportion of the people that we profile on this show that you might think don't demonstrate a great deal of humility, certainly not in the public gaze Mm. anyway. And then I saw a link to another article on the HBR website by um, a gentleman called Bill Taylor from October um, this year. So quite a recent article. And it's it's entitled, If Humility is So Important, Why Are Leaders So Arrogant? So I had to read that, obviously. And he, he goes on to say that celebration of humility sounds great, but it flies in the face of daily headlines and the realities of our business and political cultures. And you think about some of the people that we've profiled on this show. He actually name checks one, Elon Musk. Nobody is likely to say that Elon Musk practices humility, certainly in the public eye. I don't know what he does in his mm-hmm. personal life and what he does at home. So if humility is so important, this article Bill Taylor wrote asks, why are so many leaders today so arrogant? Or, to flip the question round, in the face of so much evidence that humble leaders do, in fact, outperform arrogant leaders, why is it it so hard for leaders at every level to check their egos at the office door? So I I think it's a really good point. And we've talked about a few people on this show who do lead a quiet life. They're getting on with changing the job. Adam Crozier springs to mind. There's a few articles about him, but he's he's not appearing everywhere. He's not celebrity status. He's not on the front page of the newspaper all the time. Um, And then that led me on to another. So I told you I went down a real rabbit hole. You did go down a rabbit hole, yeah. (laughs) And there's a book called Humble Inquiry. Uh, Edgar Schein, I think his his name is, it's spelled S-C-H-E-I-N, Schein. And he he looks into the gentle art of asking instead of telling. And he looks at three different forms of humility. Now, this is going to be relevant when I get to the third one. So the first one is the humility we feel around elders and dignitaries. 
that's just part of our social life. The second is the humility we feel in the presence of those who awe us with their achievements. Again, that's a standard part of our life, professional life. And it's the third form that is rarely observed in business, according to Edgar and the most relevant for leaders who truly want to achieve big things. So I think we come back round to this level five leader. And this is here and now humility. It's how I feel when I am dependent on you. My status is inferior to yours at this very moment because you know something or can do something that I need to accomplish a, a task or a goal. So I am humble because I am temporarily dependent on you. And in, in this book, he says that actually that's where a lot of leaders fall down. And according to Jim, um, and we're coming all the way back to good to great, this is how they don't become a level five and how they don't become great companies. It's accepting that you can't be great at everything. And it's having the humility to recognise that another individual within your organisation or team has got a skill um, either that you don't have at all or that they have it um, in spades, whereas you have some basic knowledge. And it goes right the way back to the quote that we started with. By definition, it is not possible to everyone to be above the average. And that's true of every skill set that we might have within an organisation. Absolutely. So we will put the link for this book on our website. Dan, there is on the website also a, a full list of all the books or apps or websites or events that we have reviewed. A full list of all of the business leaders that we've profiled. Some are level five leaders on there as well. This week's business leader is, um, is somebody whose business started close to home uh, in Oswestry, which... Um, you might think is is a, is a bit unusual. Anyway, this is what this business now has eight over eight hundred stores worldwide, um, nationwide, and turns over around two hundred million pounds. Employs over twenty five thousand staff, uh, and started in Leg Street in Oswestry, where Malcolm Walker opened the first Iceland store. Uh, um, Walker worked in. Um, Woolworths in Wrexham and um, wanted to earn a little bit more money. So he and a friend started selling um, frozen Yeah, veg. loose frozen Loose frozen food, veg, yeah. yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, their employer found out, so they got sacked because they were kind of doing it as a bit of a <laughs> He said a it was moonlight. the boost he needed. Yeah, yeah. It, and sometimes we all need a bit of a boost up the backside to, to get things moving. Um, so that was in 1970. By 1977, um, they'd, um, by 1978, they'd got 28 stores and it, it kind of ran from That's there. That's some boost, isn't it? That is a boost. So, um, yeah, Malcolm Walker is a, um, a Yorkshireman born in 1946 uh, and his first venture, it sounds like he um, he's always been um, quite entrepreneurial because he started off promoting dances and, and acts. He, he used to book them at different venues and um, and obviously make money out of it. But his starting capital for Iceland was £30. Did you pick up on the bit where when he was doing the, um, the promotion for dance events that... Um Another gentleman approached him to ask if he could come in on the dance events. No. And that gentleman's name was Peter Stringfellow. Oh, really? <laughs> in the article I read, he said, well, life could have been a lot more interesting could if I said yes. <laughs> it would have been different, maybe. It would, I think it would have been very different. Um, it, well, yeah, I mean, 
I like this. I like the sound of this guy. Um, as is usual, you know, we watch videos, etc. That there's no side to him. He, he he doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not. His business is hugely successful. It's been a roller coaster. Let's make no bones about it. It's had controversy and financial troubles, etc. But he just seems consistent, and I quite like that in the man. He just seems to be. I am what I am. I'm doing the best that I can. Uh, and, you know, okay, people will have a, a dig. But basically, he seems to be a decent kind of a chap. What What did you find? And what did you go down a rabbit hole, Tracy? I went down lots of different rabbit holes, but they didn't take me to too many different people. I, I did go to some extra people. Some extra, yeah. um, but the first thing I read was an article uh, my husband referred me to, um, an interview with Decker Aitkenhead in The Guardian from 2013. And Malcolm comes across as somewhat irascible in there. But uh, even though it, he walked out of the interview a few times and, and sort of called us some very rude names, she still came away quite liking him. And I think that probably says um, quite a bit for for his character. And, and I think the reason he was getting um, upset was that she admits herself she was trying to tease out where the line between profit and altruism lies. And he, as she said, he clearly thinks I'm quite mad. And I think it was this pushing this, well, the food that you sell isn't the most healthy or this, that and the other. And and as you say, I, you know, I don't know, the, the food he sells is in demand. It clearly, it, it's a business model that works for him. Is it his responsibility solely to make sure that people are eating the right food? I don't know. Well, and, and and the business started at a time when healthy eating wasn't even on the agenda because we didn't overeat. You know, the the food that that Iceland was, was selling in 1970 would be very different to the food that it's selling now. Uh, and I, you know, there is that. When do we take responsibility for for what we put into our mouths? And yeah. you know, not suggesting that you eat out of Iceland every day. You know all of the fatty foods and no fresh veg and all of that kind of thing. But um, but their product range has, expand, has expanded massively in recent yeah. years anyway. Well, like I say, she said she quite liked him. And um, she says it's hard not to admire a businessman who has employed the same PR advisor for 30 years. Okay. And um, she actually got an email from this PR advisor the next day, which she shares right at the end of of the article um, and it says dear Decker I hope you had a safe trip back to London after your uh, interesting interview with Malcolm yesterday and that you aren't currently bound and gagged in the boot of a Bentley so a PR advisor with a bit of a sense of humour yes. as well yes um, but he is a Yorkshireman yeah. so he's going to say it like it is yeah. and that's uh, that's what I like and he left the interview but he came back in yeah. calmed Calmed yep. himself down and came back in. So um, there's there's quite a few articles out there. There's another one I read in the Telegraph. Uh, it was a bit more s straightforward than the Decker Aikenhead one. You know, just simple, straightforward questions. Um, one of them is, what annual salary do you take from the business? His response is, enough. Yep. And your personal wealth has been put at 215 million. Is this accurate? And he says, that's the rich list figure. But it's family wealth. My kids have got most of my money. It's what you do, isn't it? Diversify your wealth. And um, 
The other thing I found was that um, he credits a lot of his success to his wife, who he calls Rani. Um, she's got a Welsh name and he says that after 50 years he still can't pronounce it. I'm not even going to try. Um, but sadly, she's been suffering from Alzheimer's since 2010, which um, may explain the reason why um, the proceeds from the book that he wrote, Best Serve Cold, which was published in 2013, they're being donated to Alzheimer's Research UK. The the financial story of Iceland is, is quite interesting and has been quite volatile. Um, the, the business was profitable for over 30 years. And, and then in 2001, um, having merged with Booker, Iceland issued a profit warning, um, which was just after Walker had dumped £13.5 million worth of shares. Um, it, he was holidaying in the Maldives when the warning was issued. And by the time he returned home, he was out on his ear. He was cleared of any wrongdoing by the serious fraud office three years later, but the experience stung. And as the company floundered in his absence, he scraped together a consortium in 2005 to take Iceland private again. He returned it to profit um, and uh, its comeback was complete in 2012 when he and several investors completed £1.6 billion management buyout of the firm. So... um, you know, he's he's been through the mill. He enjoys his money. He makes no apologies. He says, why should I pretend to be anything that I'm not? Um, you know, yes, I've earned a lot of money. He drives around with a personalised number plate 1CE. I mean, you know, and fair play to him. And that he only uses once, twice a year. Yes. But there but, you go. Yeah, but but all in all. And his his children certainly seem to be... Well, yeah, it's his children. that That's the only rabbit hole I went down with this one. I, I investigated um, what his children were doing because he says he's distributed his wealth, he's diversified his wealth to his children. He's got three, a son, Richard, and... Um, a daughter, Caroline, another daughter, Alexia. Now, they're all um, working and um, successful in their own right as professional people. And hats off to them. You know, they, their father is worth an awful lot of money, but they're still uh, gone on and, Going and, and made a success yes. the, for themselves. So his son, Richard, is managing director of Iceland Foods Group, um, is chairman of a property company and a charity trustee and a member of Greenpeace, likes family, mountains and surfing. That's his Twitter profile. Um, one of his daughters, Caroline, runs an £11 million turnover company um, called Nature As Nature Intended, which is um, a company with six shops in London stocking organic and natural food, body care and supplements. And his other daughter, Alexia, was an equities trader in the city and then set up her own luxury travel business. So I think hats off to him and his family quite an entrepreneurial family yeah yeah very interesting and uh, by all accounts some of the stuff we're reading is that they're um they're getting rid of plastic packaging they're stopping using palm oil and their own brand foods by the end of this year and uh, they've a good company to work for yes yeah a good place to work and also i have to mention on a couple of occasions they've offered a 10 percent discount to nhs and emergency services staff at christmas and in the summer so hey Come on, give him a break. So on that note, we've just about finished. It's nearly time for the news, so we'll say goodbye for this week. Thank you very much for listening to the business community on Calon FM. You've been listening to the business community with me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. Join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.